Today we get to a text that I have been looking forward to preaching for a very long time. Today we are introduced to a text that ultimately our hearts have all been longing for since the fall of man. Today we get to a text that shows us that there is a guaranteed moment in history where complete justice is served and all evil in all of its forms are completely dealt with as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, returns. Here in just a month, we are going to celebrate the first advent where our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, took on flesh and came in the form of man, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross so that you could be set free from your sins, so that I could be set free from my sins, that we could be born again and made new creations in Christ Jesus. And we're at the first advent, Christ brought redemption. At the second advent, or at his second coming, he brings restoration, where he's going to make all things new where the enemy and the curse is completely and ultimately broken and to where we have complete freedom, to where we see the lion will lay down with the lamb in the millennial kingdom that he will usher in, the, the, the message that he preached, that the kingdom of God is, is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. We will see that ultimately come to fruition here in this passage at the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see this reality and we see this truth play out in this passage of Scripture. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, and a message entitled, The King Returns. That he comes back for us. This, this, this Savior, this King, the one who died on the cross, was buried and rose again, ascended into heaven. That, that he will return for us. What a beautiful day this will be. What a beautiful time for us to rejoice in this morning of a reality that cannot be taken away. Read with me in God's word, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, this speaks of the unknowability of God, that there, there is a mystery of God that we will not know him completely. But notice that even though he is uh, 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 transcendent above his creation, he's also imminent to where we can know him. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, I believe that that is a, uh, a symbol of the blood that he shed on the cross. Uh, he hasn't tread upon the, the, the wine press of his wrath just yet. He's coming back, but we see that his robe is already dipped in blood. That is talking about the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God and the armies of heaven. That's all believers. Amen. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I'm naming mine shadow facts. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Now, if you have time, go back later and, and look at the two suppers that we find in Revelation 19. We have the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we have the great supper of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb, we're symbolically going to partake in the Lord's Supper today, which is a reflection of that day. But there is a great supper of God where humanity won't be feasting. Humanity will be feasted upon by the birds of the air, for these are the individuals that make war against God Almighty. He says, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, now remember uh, in the passage we looked at last week that those that gather at the table of the Lord at the marriage feast of the Lamb are both great and small. There, there's nobody that is outside of the saving grace of God, and there is nobody that will not remain underneath the judgment of God if they don't repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. There is no neutrality in creation. You are either for him or you are against him. You are either in God's army or you're in Satan's army. So many people try to straddle and have one foot in both. Listen, it's, it's either or. It's not both and. Have you enlisted in the army of God by faith in Christ Jesus? If not, you are in complete and open war against the creator of the universe. Verse 20 says, and the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And may God bless the reading of his word. When I was at the commissioning ceremony and the, the orientation for those church planters gathered at the North American Mission Board headquarters in Georgia. We have a new uh, president over Sin Network um, that oversees the church planting arm of the North American Mission Board. His name's Vance Fentman, uh, and he went 22 years ago to plant a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, he said he didn't even know where Las Vegas was. He said outside of, on occasion, Bob Barker would give a trip away on the Showcase Showdown sometime to Las Vegas. He didn't even know where Las Vegas was. And he went 22 years ago and he planted a church. And God has seen and done great things with that church to where they've now planted over 90 churches on the West Coast from that initial church plant there in Las Vegas. And he was talking about the fact that him and his wife read books in two very different ways. He says, I read uh, a book like a sane person, like a person that has some type of sense. I start on page one with the first word, and I read from page one, the first word, all the way to the last page and the last word, and I read it in sequential order like the author had intended somebody to read. He said, my wife reads completely different. 
she starts with the last chapter of the book and reads the last chapter to determine whether or not it's worth reading the rest of the book. I would normally say she's probably got some bodies buried somewhere near the property if that is how she operates. But can I say there is a book that when you read the last chapter and you see the glory that awaits all those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ Jesus, can I tell you it makes the life worth living and it makes the rest of the book worth reading. Amen? Because he is coming back. He is coming back. The king is returning. And we see that play out in our text today. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to if you're taking notes is this. The king's return is visible, bringing with him the joint heirs. This is a visible return. This isn't some philosophical notion. This isn't some kind of spiritual ideology. This is a reality that will be grounded in history. That just as Jesus Christ came in the flesh the first time, he will return in the flesh a second time, and he will do so to vanquish all of his foes, and it will be done visibly. But he doesn't come alone. Notice where it gives a description of our Lord and Savior who is sitting on this white horse, and he's given these names. He's given this name of faithful and true. He's given this name of word of God. He has a name in which no one knows as of yet. Uh, There is uh, the name of king of kings and lord of lords. But look at this. He being clothed, Jesus, in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is the the church. This is these that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We are following behind him as he comes to usher in his kingdom in which we will be co-heirs with Christ in this kingdom. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Oftentimes, we don't have victory here in this life because we fail to understand who we are. Yesterday, me and my children were watching the the, the movie Hook. Anybody remember the the movie Hook Uh, and with Robin Williams uh, and in it? He, he has grown up and he forgets who he is. And so he's in Neverland and uh, Rufio, if you know the, 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 the movie, uh, Rufio is kind of taken over as, as, as Pan uh, there in Neverland. And all of the lost boys are kind of on, on his side because they look at Robin Williams and, and they think, listen, you don't want to look like Peter Pan, but not only that, I mean, you, you don't look like much of anything. But this one little boy comes to him and he looks at him and he starts to see in him what he doesn't see in himself. And he comes to the realization of remembering who he was. And the moment he realized who he was, everything changed. So much goes on in our lives to where we feel defeated because we don't know who we are. We're co-heirs with Christ. 
We're in Christ. He's victorious. And so therefore we are victorious. And one day we will come with him as he returns to bring justice and to vanquish all of his enemies. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 24 says this, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is a guarantee that has been given to us by God Almighty. You sit here and you feel defeated in this moment right now. You, you, you are gripped in worry and fear and anxiety for what the world your children is going to inherit is going to look like. Uh, you're, you're worrying about what next week is going to look like. You're worrying about what next month is going to look like. You're worrying about what next year is going to look like. Can I point you back to Revelation 19 and tell you what the end of the world looks like it looks like a victorious king coming with a victorious army and he sets all things right and makes all things new that's ultimately what we can rest assured in that reality and that truth but I want you to understand that the, the same Christ that ascended into heaven is the same Christ that is returning Acts 1 9 to 11 says this and when he had said these things what we just prayed earlier that he was calling them to be witnesses uh, from all the way from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And as they were looking on, the disciples, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I mean, if I'm there, I'm saying, what are you talking about? I just saw Jesus ascend into heaven. What do you mean why am I looking up into heaven? Why are you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's say the same place. says the same way. But notice this. This Jesus. It's not some different type of Jesus. This Jesus, the second member of the Holy Trinity, the one who came and took on flesh and was born of the virgin. This Jesus, the, the same Jesus who walked on water, the same Jesus who hushed the storms, the same Jesus who restored sight to the blind, the same Jesus who made the, the lame walk, the same Jesus who fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fish, the same Jesus who uh, confronted the Pharisees with their religious uh, 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 sayings and their religious ways, the, 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 the same Jesus who went to the cross for your sins and my sins. It's the same Jesus who was buried, this same Jesus who rose, this same Jesus who ascended is the same Jesus that's coming back. Amen? Amen. This Jesus, this Jesus that you know, this Jesus who died for you, this Jesus who was beat for you, this Jesus who has poured into your life these three years of earthly ministry, who's going away so the Holy Spirit can come, who will empower you to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. It is this Jesus who's coming back. Rejoice in that reality and in that truth. I find it interesting, though, that the army of God is found behind Jesus. There's an interesting passage of scripture in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 20, 15 through 17, where a man talking to King Jehoshaphat, as they are being surrounded by the enemy, says this. 
And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. He says, you don't, you don't need to fight this battle. You need to put the armor of God on, and you need to stand firm and take your position. But God is going to fight the battle for you. In Revelation 19, we see that we are following Jesus on these white horses, but from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And in the last verse of 21, it says, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. We don't, God fights our battles. He will, in Revelation 19, at the greatest battle of the world, he will fight the battle. The one who spoke everything into existence, all he has to do is speak truth, and he defeats his enemies. So the question is, why do you keep trying to run ahead of God and fight battles? You were never called to fight as if you got more strength than God Almighty. When all you were called to do, Ephesians 6 is to put on the full armor of God and to stand firm and to watch the salvation of the Lord, for he is our deliverer, he is our rescue, he is our king, he is our redeemer, redeemer, and he will fight the battle for you. So many of us are exhausted and wore out because we're trying to fight battles ahead of God instead of standing firm in the full armor of God and watching the deliverance of God Almighty work on our behalf, knowing that ultimately, even if we don't experience now, we will in the coming of Christ and his return where all evil will be vanquished once and for all. May we take up our proper position. Now, these three names that we see in this text really speak of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We see that uh, he is referred to as faithful and true. If you remember back in, in Revelation 3.14, God's word says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In other words, we see this, this fact that, that Christ took on flesh, that he is faithful and true, that he is a witness. That he's not a distant God. He's a God who, who came and to show us how we should live our lives and showed us ultimately who God truly is. We see in verse 13 that he's referred to as the word of God. John 1, 1 through 4 shows us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. John would go on to write in that same chapter, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, King of kings and Lord of lords. We see this, this name, King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16 says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus 
who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That is our Savior. He's a Savior in the flesh. He's a Savior who humbled himself, emptied himself, and took on flesh so that he could do for us that which we can't do for ourselves. It is this Jesus, the incarnate Christ, who returns and returns on our behalf to make all things new and to usher in his kingdom that we all have been longing and waiting for. Secondly, I want to show you that the king's return is vengeful, bringing with him justice. The king's return is vengeful and brings with him justice. Notice again that John sees an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Ultimately, Jesus doesn't come back in this caricature or this this cartoon. I think we have a a, a picture that looks uh, in in many ways of what I think we think Jesus is going to look like on his return. This sweet, soft, innocent Jesus that especially gets painted here in the West where it's just love. He doesn't care how you live your life. He doesn't care about the sin in your life. He doesn't care about any of that. He's just going to come back, and and he's just going to forgive everybody and everything, and it really doesn't matter if you lived your life according to God's word. really doesn't matter if you ever repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ Jesus. He's just going to come back, and he's going to sprinkle fairy dust on everybody, and everybody's just going to be happy. That's not what the Scripture says. Listen, when he comes back, he is coming back as the conquering king who rights all wrongs and vanquishes all of his enemies. The first time he came, he came for a crucifixion. When he returns, he's coming for a coronation. The first time he came, he came to go die on a tree. The next time he comes, it's to sit on a throne. The first time he came, he came in, in, in shame. The next time he comes, he comes in all of his splendor. He no longer comes as a suffering servant. He comes as a conquering king. And that's who we worship. Not some weak God who has no power. Not some distant God who doesn't care and is not involved in our lives, but a God who comes to vanquish the enemies and to set us free and to usher in the kingdom of God Almighty. That is the God that we serve. And he comes with him to bring justice. Now, there's a difference between revenge and vengeance. There's a difference between revenge and vengeance. Vengeance or or, or revenge speaks more of something that uh, is underhanded, that has in its heart uh, the, the idea to, to, to hurt, 
the idea to, uh, to, to cause pain and grief and suffering and actually enjoys the idea of somebody else hurting. But we know that our God is a patient God who desires all to be saved, but yet there comes a point in time where his grace does run out and it gives way to his wrath. Vengeance is righting wrongs. Vengeance is establishing justice. And our God is a vengeful God. He says in Romans 12, 19 through 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. All evil that has set themselves up against God Almighty will be dealt with by God one day. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Here in a moment, we're going to take out the bread and the cup. If you have bitterness towards a brother or sister in this room, I would lovingly call you to Scripture, which says you need to go to that brother, you need to go to that sister, and before you take out the bread and the cup, you, you need to apologize for the offense that you've caused in their life with no expectation of anything in return. You need to apologize to them. If you're holding on to bitterness towards somebody else for something that they have done to you or to a family member before you take up this bread and this cup, we're going to have a time of confession. You need to turn that person over to the Lord and say, I forgive them, Lord. Because as we've been forgiven in Christ, we need to forgive others. Don't come to my, don't come to my table with bitterness in your heart when this represents the forgiveness of our sins. And he didn't just forgive some of our sins or the sins that weren't too, 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 too big. He forgave all of our sins. So let us not be the servant that goes off after having been forgiven of our great debt to start choking other people. Amen? As much as you may want to. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. In fact, Christ would go on to, or Paul would go on to say, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, a kind word can turn somebody from wrath. That we display a confounding principle of being a follower of Jesus Christ that points individuals to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ in moments where most individuals would want to respond negatively, we can, through the reliance upon the Holy Spirit, respond in a godly way. The third thing that I want you to see is that the king's return is victorious, bringing with him great joy. And ultimately, th this is Revelation 19, 11 through 21. It is the victorious king returning victoriously. We live in an economy of God's that is already not yet. We're already victorious in Christ Jesus. Jesus is already victorious. He's already crushed the head of the serpent, Satan. But we live in a, a not yet where we haven't fully experienced that at this point. But one day we will. One day the not yet will give way to the now. And that is what we read in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. We read of the king's return being victorious and with it bringing with him great joy. 1 John 5, 4 speaks of this victory that we have in Christ Jesus. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Why do we not experience so much victory here on this earth right now? Why do we not experience victory over some of the struggles and the addictions that we have in our lives right now? Why don't we experience more victory over the worries and the fears and the anxieties that we have in our lives right now? It's because oftentimes we have run ahead of God instead of placing our faith and our trust in God Almighty. And there are those times where we have to come to the Lord and we have to say, as the man said, to Jesus, uh, help me in my unbelief. Anybody ever been there? Help me in my unbelief. God, there are some times where I'm, I'm looking at the world, I'm, I'm looking at, at the circumstances and the situations, and if I'm being honest with all of you in this room, there are times that I doubt that God is who God said he is and can do what God says he can do. There are times I doubt that he's the God of the impossible. Because there are times I look at circumstances and situations, and I say, that's impossible. Not for God, though. And I have to come to the Lord and repent. Lord, forgive me. Help me with my unbelief. So you can't say that. You're supposed to be the pastor. Every moment of every day, you're supposed to be the one that, that has it all together. Can I be honest with you? I don't. That's why I make a horrible Savior. That's why you make a horrible Savior. That's why your spouse makes a horrible Savior. Because there is only one who has the ability to save, and his name is Jesus. And unless you got nail-pierced hands and feet, guess what? You ain't him. But he loves you and cares for you and has not abandoned you. And he will not bruise a bent reed. And he will return one day with the armies of God to make all things new. And we can trust in that even in our unbelief. Help me, God, with my unbelief to know that truth as a reality so I can live each and every moment of each and every day with that truth at the forefront of my mind. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our victory comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we rest in that reality and that truth. There's a great movie. In fact, oftentimes if you look at a list of the greatest sports movies ever made, this is usually at, at, at the top uh, of the list. It's a movie called Hoosiers. Anybody ever seen Hoosiers? Raise your hand. You seen Hoosiers? Some of you in here are like, who's he? Right? <laughs> Who? Who? Hoosiers is a great movie about a small town Indiana basketball coach. He used to coach college basketball. Got himself in a little bit of trouble. He comes to this small town. Their star player, Jimmy Cheatwood. I'll give you the breakdown. Jimmy Cheatwood has quit basketball because his, his, the previous coach had, had died unexpectedly. He was like a surrogate father to him. And Jimmy's the best player in town. It's a small Indiana town where basketball is king. Think, think football for us, basketball for them. 19, set in 1951. Coach Norman come, comes in and 
He's going to get them there. He only had seven players. It's a small, small school. Back then, they didn't have classes, 1A, 2A. You, just, you all just played in the state. And through a series of events, Jimmy comes on to, to the team, and Jimmy uh, helps lead through the, 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 the coaching and through the camaraderie and the unity of the team, uh, fighting together. They make all the way to the 1952 state tournament. They're going up against a much faster, a much taller team in the South Bend Central Bears. The Hickory Huskies against the South Bend Central Bears. I mean to tell you, at this point in the movie, you're invested. You're invested in Jimmy and the whole gang. They get down early. But they fight and they claw their way back up to tie the game with just a few seconds left. And then they get the ball. Coach calls a timeout, and let's pick up right there. 1952, Indiana State. All right, lift it up, lift it up. Here's what we're going to do. Jimmy, they're going to be expecting you to take the last shot. We're going to use you as a decoy. Buddy, you get the ball, get the roll on the picket fence. He's going to take the last shot. All right, let's go. What's the matter with you guys? What's the matter with you? I'll make it. Alright. Buddy, get the ball to Jimmy, top the key. Rest of you, spread the floor. Let's go. The key. The score is tied at 40. There are 19 fateful seconds remaining in the game. It'll be inbounded by Hickory in the backcourt, along the sideline, passed in by Ray Butcher, who was responsible for the interception. It goes into Buddy Walker. Walker on the attack, still in the backcourt. How many of you have seen this movie? Does he make the shot? Does the young man in the satin boxer briefs, <laughs> for some reason, playing basketball in his underoos? <laughs> Y'all laugh. We're, some trends come back. For some reason, men, we're starting to stop. <laughs> Let me just plug that for a second, okay? Stop. You seen, you, you seen the movie? Does he make the shot? Yes or no? I, I thought y'all had seen the movie. Anybody seen the movie? Does he make the shot? How do you know he makes the shot? You've seen it. You know how it ends. You know the fact that the one that was designed to have the ball on the last play makes the shot. He wins the game. There's victory. So you know what? When you see this, you don't get What's going to happen? 
how's this going to end? You know how it's going to end. And far too often, we're like the team in the huddle where he wants to know what's wrong. What's wrong? Why do you look so defeated? Far too often, we forget how it ends. Let's see. Does he actually make the shot? And isn't that a picture? Isn't that a picture of heaven one day? Isn't that a picture of heaven one day? Rejoicing and celebrating because Jesus, listen, far too often we try to think of something and design something more creative. Let's not give the ball to Jesus. I know we'll use Jesus as a decoy and we'll figure it out ourselves. No, no, no. Give the ball to Jesus. Give the ball to Jesus. The victory is his. The victory is his. Everything that you're dealing with right now, I want you to understand, in light of who Christ is, we win. We win. That thing you're struggling with has already been defeated in Christ Jesus. We have victory in Christ Jesus, and as a result, we have great joy. Now listen to Psalm 107, verses 2 through 3. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Anybody been redeemed from trouble? Anybody been redeemed from their sin? Anybody been redeemed from uh, death and damnation and brought into eternal life? Then God's word says you need to say so. Those that he has gathered from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you have been redeemed by Christ, may we from the very mountaintops cry the name of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says that Jesus hasn't just brought us redemption, but Jesus gives us rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9 says this. In this you rejoice. What's he talking about? He's talking about the return of Jesus. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Anybody want to give a testimony? Even though you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is coming a day of great rejoicing, and therefore we don't need to wait till that day. Even though for a short time we are going through various trials, we can still rejoice because we know that ultimately Jesus has made the shot. My circumstances and my situations do not dictate to me my joy. The reality of Revelation 19, 11 through 21 does. Because he returns. He wins. And all those that are in him, we're victorious as well. Let me give you one key. One application for this in your life. If you're taking notes, write this down. Because God redeems our past, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Because God redeems our past, we can rest in the present. 
I don't have to keep running ahead of God and trying to fight battles that he will fight before me. I don't have to come up with creative ways to send Jesus off as a decoy as I try to come up with the game plan myself. I can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and I can do it right here and right now. And because God redeems our past and we can rest in the present, we can confidently know that we will rejoice in the future. We can confidently know that we will rejoice in the future. And so, therefore, my past has been redeemed. I can rest in the present because I'm going to rejoice in the future. And if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will do the same. The question is, have you? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? On what side of his return will you be standing? As an enemy? as a part of his army. Only through faith in Jesus Christ will you be standing on the right side of eternity.